Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, November 3rd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. The new speaker has been in office for a full week now and is already facing challenges at home and abroad. The U.S. has pulled in many, many different directions. And so bad guys who do not like us or do not like the West or do not like freedom, they're going to take every opportunity they can if they sense weakness. We speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. And Lisa Brady. High inflation has taken a toll on family budgets, yet American consumers are still spending, which may not be such a good thing. Credit card usage is at a new record and savings rates have plunged. So while things look pretty decent right now, you always have to look forward about the potential for what could go wrong. And I'm David McGee. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The House of Representatives has now had a speaker for more than a week. In Louisiana, Republican Mike Johnson, who holds the highest office in Congress, says the three-week search and intra-party battles are over and his colleagues are unified. There's a real sense of excitement in the base. Uh, People are believing again. They're hopeful about the future. And the people in this room are. We believe America's best days are ahead of us. We're going to get through these Biden years and we're going to turn this country around. And that work begins right now. But the challenges of governing with a narrow majority have not changed. A bill designed to aid Israel's defense while cutting IRS funding is unlikely to advance at all in the Senate. The president said he'll veto it, instead urging passage of his proposed package totaling more than $100 billion for Israel, Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific and the southern border. Plus, Congress is again on the clock, needing a short short-term spending bill to keep government open beyond November 17th. And then, of course, there's the war between Hamas and Israel. From Capitol Hill to the State Department, the Pentagon and the White House, nothing else has mattered more than ongoing efforts to free hostages and allow U.S. citizens trapped in Gaza to get out. We've got Americans who are there. We have Americans we believe are hostages actually there, but families that we're just trying to get out, American families, we are getting more word of them being able to cross through the border. Shannon Bream is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and the host of the Fox News podcast, Living the Bream. Frankly, Hamas controls that territory, and there have been a lot of folks here stateside on the Hill and more broadly to say, we do not need to give them anything in exchange for that. There's no negotiation. Those people just need to be mm-hmm. free. The Americans who live there, we're on assignment there for some reason we're there as all countries of different nationalities are working to get their people out saying we're not giving Hamas anything in exchange for this um, what's going on between Israel and Hamas is going to be a very protracted ugly war but citizens of other countries should be able to get out so you know I think there's still a lot to be done on that front but good news that it does appear that there are some Americans who've been able to get out of that Rafah crossing through Egypt yeah, as we look at kind of the president's days here over the last few weeks, they, they almost always include a readout of phone calls he's having with Prime Minister Netanyahu or King Abdullah or other regional, President Sisi, uh, other regional leaders. How much does that 
kind of overwhelm the coverage. Um, so I guess just from the coverage standpoint, the, the, the way that the White House kind of shifts their, their priorities, um, is that a challenge for, for this White House, for any White House? Governing is one thing and campaigning can be something very different. He's been out there, the president, talking about Bidenomics and trying to say that there's been a real turnaround, but citizens don't see it translating into their lives. At least the polling shows us just yet. But it's tough for the White House to want to be talking about these domestic priorities. And, you know, when they go out and do things in the middle of this war, talking about junk fees and how they're cutting back, people are sort of scratching their heads like, whoa, 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 there's a war going on here. Why are you talking about this domestic stuff? So they've got to find that balance that allows him to govern, but also to campaign. Well, and that governing also includes trying to get Congress to move forward on an aid bill. Listen, that's something that remains kind of a tough slog. The House Republicans going in a different way than even Senate Republicans and certainly right. the Senate are at large. Parties are not monolithic mm -hmm. on this mm -hmm. stuff because there's almost universal agreement, but not universal, but close, that <laughs> Israel needs to be the top priority. They need to have aid right now. They are in the middle of a war. What can we do? What should we do? What should the U.S. do? You know, the mm -hmm. House has signaled and the new speaker has signaled what he intends to do. He wants that standalone Israel aid package. But over in the Senate, you've got some over there saying, listen, it's DOA. We're not going to touch it here. It's not going to work. Why are they wasting mm -hmm. the time? But you also have a split among Republicans over on the Senate side saying we should at least look at this because many of us here also think that Israel should not be tied to Ukraine. Yeah. And you've heard the administration and even some Republicans like Mitch McConnell and others say, well, they're tied to like Iran's the common thread here, right? That mm -hmm. Iran's kind of funding both sides. And that's why we need to tie these issues together. Um, that's not always I mean, it, it reminds me, I mean, you're kind of hearing, I think I've heard the phrase axis of evil, haven't you? The, the mm -hmm. last couple of weeks mm -hmm. sort of going back to that speech that President Bush made, I, I suppose, more than a decade ago. The U.S. is pulled in many, many different directions. And so bad guys who do not like us or do not like the West or do not like freedom, they're going to take every opportunity they can if they sense weakness. And so we do have to worry about how these different powers are aligned. And clearly, Iran and its proxies hitting, you know, U.S. interests in Iraq and Syria. You know, this administration and the Pentagon want to make clear that our strikes back on that are not directly connected to the Israel-Hamas war. But mm -hmm. all of this stuff is in some way connected. Well, and that's the worry, right, that this does escalate into a more regional mm -hmm. uh, conflict that would draw in the United States, especially right. if it involves like Syria or Iraq, where there are U.S. Mm -hmm. troops. Yeah. But, and you do have people like Senator Lindsey Graham, who I do think is an outlier. He's very much proudly mm -hmm. known as a hawk on the hill. But when he's talking about actually taking physical strikes on Iran's oil infrastructure or on Iranian yeah. soil, that raises a lot of eyebrows. And you do have other Republicans saying, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So nobody wants this to turn into a regional or even more disastrously broad conflict. But there are so many competing interests. Yeah, that's the worry, certainly. You know, you mentioned uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. I was going to ask you about him because he, on the Senate floor this week, really let Senator Tommy Tuberville have it. This was the first time that really we've seen this very public rebuke mm -hmm. by fellow Republicans against what Tuberville's doing in trying to get the Pentagon to change its policy as it relates to uh, abortion. Mm -hmm. Does the war in Israel, in Gaza, change the trajectory of that fight. Not for Tommy Tuberville, 
He says he's there's zero chance he's going to back down on this. I mean, his whole objection is I told the Pentagon before they instituted this new policy, which is paid leave, paid time off, travel expenses for abortion, for service members and dependents. He says it's against U.S. law. Congress has not legislated a workaround on this. And the Pentagon is breaking the law every time they do this. He said, I told them before they did it. This is what I'm going to do. And nine months into it, he does not seem like he's ready to cave. If anything, he seems more dug in about this. We're at a time of or potentially on multiple fronts around the globe, indirectly involving the U.S. And so we got to get moving. So let's yep. talk about the presidential politics, because we got the uh, the new Fox News power rankings this week. Uh, no surprise, Shannon, that, that Donald mm-hmm. Trump remains uh, the sort of a movable force in the Republican uh, nomination. Some upticks for uh, Nikki Haley, some downticks for uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Is this race decided? I mean, is there going to be a major challenge here to the former President Trump? His support hasn't really changed, but it is the rest of the field, as you point out, where we see some moves and you're going to have that next debate next week. And so it's going to be a smaller field. You're going to see, I think, much more sharp elbows probably thrown in this thing because it's sort of sharp so far. (laughs) They're going to get really, um, I think, potentially more aggressive because it's do or die time. Is the rest of the field going to coalesce around one other person? Because that's really the only hope that the GOP has if they don't want Trump as their nominee. Um, And Haley has said from the beginning, she was the first serious candidate in who Mm -hmm. said, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to every Elks Lodge. I'm going to every elementary school. I'm going to every pizza branch. I'm like, I'm going everywhere. (laughs) Um, And that's paying off for her. I mean, sticking in for the long haul. And she always and her team has always had confidence in her on the debate stage. And that's paid off for her as well, I think. So listen, based on our power rankings, I think everyone but, but President Trump is a long shot. But Um, things happen. He's mired in numerous trials. Um, You're three months out from Iowa. And if somebody could pull off a surprising win there, which I think they're all gunning to do something of an upset or a much closer finish in Iowa. But that may be the first public headline that a lot of people get about this race. And if it's much closer than President Trump wants it to be, or if some way he's upset, that actually does change the entire race from then on. So we'll see. This fascinating case going on in Colorado where a group of voters are trying to prevent Donald Trump from being allowed to appear on the ballot there, citing the 14th Amendment and a prohibition on people who have participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the government from being in federal office. You have that law degree. Uh, Mm -hmm. The 14th Amendment, I think, it's cited a lot and in a lot of different Mm -hmm. legal challenges. What is the crux here and what's the likelihood that um, it could be used to keep President Trump off a ballot? Well, it was ratified after the Civil War and basically says that if you're a U.S. official who's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, you're disqualified from office if you, quote, engaged in insurrection. And so the argument against President Trump is that's what January 6th was. Constitution really doesn't have a lot of guidelines or framework for enforcing because this ban. It's only been used twice since 1919. So most people view the idea was was coming out of the Civil War and people right. who literally had fought for the Confederacy or exactly. served in the Confederacy government could not serve 
uh, in the in the federal government again. Right. right. They could be like trusted. The idea. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So this Colorado judge um, on Wednesday told President Trump he tried to shut down like you always do at the beginning of a trial, mo- you know, motions to dismiss or summary, judgment, whatever you can do in the beginning. You try to get rid of it. Um, but she uh, told the Trump legal team, no, like this case is actually going to proceed. Um, and it's important because if it works here, you would imagine that people would would file this effort to keep him off the ballot in all 50 states. But if it fails in Colorado, that is probably going to discourage from trying it. And this is a state trial, right? This isn't federal. Um, it's a state judge, this is, I think. Right, right, right. It's uh, and so, um, it's in Denver District Court. Yep. But the likelihood is regardless, I mean, especially if he's kicked off the ballot, this would, I mean, is the Supreme Court going to have to get involved in, in these types of disputes? I mean, they could because I think this is one of those questions of import, you know, in interpreting the Constitution. And certainly, I know there's at least one other state that is trying to move towards trial in this. Mm. If there was a split in the two states, I think the Supreme Court would definitely get involved. But I do think it's such a question of import kicking, you know, the leading contender off the ballot for the presidency. Um, I would imagine the Supreme Court, I don't think they want to get involved with these kinds of questions, (laughs) but I think they might feel an obligation to do it. Well, I see a new class shaping up for those one else about the inner law school. Oh, boom. 14th Amendment, deep dive. There you go. I look forward to to you teaching that to me someday. <laughs> oh, boy. Listen, as much as you cover the courts in the Supreme Court, you should just go ahead and take the bar because you'd probably pass anyway. <laughs> I don't know if that's such a great <laughs> idea, but I appreciate the uh, the vote of confidence. All right. Shannon Green. <sighs> uh, let me, oh, I got to finish. What what do we have on Sunday? I, I, we totally even forgot that you have a another job here. What what do we have on oh, Sunday? Oh, yes. Uh, well, we're going to talk to Speaker Johnson. Speaker Johnson's going to be oh, with wow. us for okay. um, an extended period of time so we can talk about all of these things. You know, a lot of the oppo research, they didn't have time to do before he got voted speaker. Well, he but was a fairly unknown figure. Right, so. which is how he became speaker. I'm quite yeah. convinced um, that he'd been under the radar. I've been familiar with him for a long time, interviewed him with a lot of legal fights and things that he's been involved with over the years. So I was familiar with him, but I think that, yeah, he flew under the radar a little bit. So we'll talk to him about all kinds of things. Um, this fight over funding Israel separately from mm-hmm. Ukraine. Can you do it? We run out of money on November 17th. Are we going to do yeah. a continuing resolution? What's going to be tied to that? So many fights that are going on. Um, yeah, and all the critics who call him extreme and dangerous and all of those things in the 2020 election. What was his role in that? So we got a lot to discuss there. We've also got Ohio Governor Mike DeWine with us because Mm. there are a lot, as you know, of state ballot things that happen in the next week or so on abortion. Virginia's got their um, Mm -hmm. entire state legislative body is up for re-election. So we'll look ahead to some of those important um, elections that are coming in the next week. And I think we got to do a deep dive on the border, on all kinds of other legal issues for the president, former president, and listen, investigations involving the current one, too. So it's going to be a busy show. It will be. I can't believe you're going to pack all of that in the 60 minutes. We'll be watching. Shannon, thanks so much. (laughs) Thanks, Jared. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is David McGee with your Fox News commentary coming up. Inflation isn't the red-hot problem it used to be for the Federal Reserve, but Fed Chief Jay Powell still says there's a long way to go. Inflation has moderated since the middle of last year, and readings over the summer were quite favorable. But a few months of good data are only the beginning of what it will take to build confidence 
that inflation is moving down sustainably toward our goal. In other words, he doesn't rule out another rate hike to keep fighting inflation. This week, the central bank left interest rates unchanged for a second straight meeting, the first back-to-back pauses in nearly two years. In light of the uncertainties and risks and how far we have come, The committee is proceeding carefully. Part of the uncertainty stems from the economy's resiliency, including the job market and overall growth, weathering an aggressive string of Fed rate hikes that began last year. In the third quarter, the U.S. economy growing at 4.9 percent, more than double the second quarter reading for gross domestic product. Well, I think uh, you have to be careful when you see uh, GDP numbers. Gary Kaltbaum is president of Kaltbaum Capital Management and a Fox Business contributor. You have to remember that this government just took federal spending from $4.4 trillion the year before COVID to over $6.5 trillion this year. That goes into GDP. But leave no doubt the uh, consumer's still spending, but there's a big but there. Uh, credit card usage is at a new record and savings rates have plunged. So while things look pretty decent right now, you always have to look forward about the potential for what could go wrong, even though I am an optimist. And what could go wrong is very simple. There's a lot of debt out there. Uh, Interest rates on the debt have skyrocketed also. We've seen a record high on credit card interest rates, uh, as well as you know about the mortgages. Though in the last few days, interest rates finally started to come down. So maybe that eases the pressure off a little bit as uh, mortgage rates went to 8%. But just leave no doubt a combination of government spending and the consumer just just likes uh, still spending, whether it's uh, their savings or uh, off a credit card is still at hand and it's showing up pretty well. What are the longer term risks of all that debt for the U.S. economy? And obviously in the individual household, if you get to a point where you can't keep up with those bills, it could have you know catastrophic effects. But. How does that translate into a risk for the overall economy? I'll give you two words, job market. Uh, The job market remains in pretty darn good shape. And you have to remember, usually it's the job market that goes last if things do get in trouble, because businesses are loath to get rid of people until they really see trouble because they don't want to get into a situation where they get rid of too many people and have to then hire them back, which is usually at higher prices. So I'm watching it very closely. Thankfully, the job market is still in shape. That means people are getting uh, whatever income they're getting. Plus, two years ago on their savings, they were getting zero. Now they're getting near uh, in and around 5%. So that's helping also. If we start to lose that, I think all bets are off because we are really in one of the biggest debt-laden environments uh, we have seen pretty much ever. And that is not just the consumer, but it's governments uh, as well as corporations also. One of the issues that's wrapped into inflation and the job market as well is child care. The cost of child care has really spiked. There's a Bank of America Institute report. Um, their data shows the average child care payment up 32 percent from 2019. That outpaced inflation at the consumer level, which they say was up 20 percent over the same period. That doesn't sound like a sustainable rise in child care costs for many families. Yeah, and that means they have to adjust. 
maybe the wife or husband decides to stay home. You know, fortunately, a, a lot of business now is at stay at home so you can watch your kids versus uh, child care. But leave no doubt, it's not the only cost has gone up. Uh, the cost of pretty much everything has been pushed up over the last few years, almost unsustainable. And I know they're saying that inflation has come down. Well, the rate of inflation has come down, but prices have not in that if if something went up 10% last year and is up 4% this year, well, the rate of going up is down, but it's still up 14% in two years. Uh, of, again, that is part of the equation that has to be addressed going forward because you said childcare is a huge part of the equation for families as well as so many other things that are going on right now. So there is a, a movement afoot uh, that had is going to need to change or eventually things will hit a wall. You just can't keep uh, prices going up without uh, people making a lot more money, or again, the wall will be hit. Are the childcare costs in particular one of the driving factors in labor shortages since the pandemic, or are other things you know, more of a factor than that? Well, it's a contributor. You know, when a family has to think it over, it changes behavior and maybe changes uh, the decision making. There's so many factors right now in that. And that's why you're hearing so many trial balloons about four day work week, about people fighting uh, ab about, oh, we will only want to go into the office two out of five days, three out of five days, four out of five days. And um, the more people uh, have the ability to uh, jawbone business into that, uh, that can change the playing field also. One other issue that could maybe could be tied into the child care costs, um, the declining U.S. birth rate. Uh, there's, oh, yeah. a, there's a new report using CDC data that shows a 22 percent drop in the U.S. birth rate since 2007. And in about 30 years, the U.S. population is projected to actually be declining instead of growing at all. What kinds of impacts, I know it's a broad question, but what kinds of impacts can that have on the economy? Well, it's not that broad. The word shortage comes to mind. Uh, fewer people, and think of the word food chain. Let's start with Social Security. The reason why people get their Social Security checks right now is because of people that are working that are uh, paying off the Social Security because all that money that was taken out was supposed to be in a lockbox, and uh, that seems to be gone. So we can start with that. Uh, and then just the shortage part. Uh, as I do my homework every week on what's happening with businesses, uh, whether it be air traffic controllers, pilots, teachers, you name it, there is a shortage of workers and as less people are being born, uh, it, you just add, add in the numbers, it just becomes uh, much tougher. By the way, it's not just going on here, it, it's other countries around the globe. It's a reason why China that had restrictions on birth opened it up again because they realized uh, what the future holds. And, and let's not forget the marriage part. Uh, people are putting off marriage. And guess what? You're not having mostly having kids if you're not getting married. So there's a whole lot of sociological things going on right now that are not in favor uh, of uh, uh, more uh, birth going forward. But you never know. Things change over time. Uh, the thinkings change over time. Right now, the trajectory is the wrong way. 
I wonder how much of what's happening and even the spending decisions that people are making is tied to kind of a post-pandemic mindset on comfort, on life's too short, maybe. And I'll just use as one example, Starbucks just had a blockbuster earnings report and said it's partly because people are just making more expensive choices from from their menu. Is that is that a lot of what's going on right now? It's also the uh, triple espressos and the breakfast sandwiches I get every day uh, at Starbucks. Uh, that, that's doing the trick. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's decisions are made by individuals and families based on everything that they are feeling, seeing, and watching. And uh, we had a major, major movement into travel after the pandemic. Why? Oh, I don't, I've been sitting on my rear for a year, whatever. I want to get out and do this, that, and the other thing and see the world. Uh, I was reading the other day about the price of concert tickets that are insane and people are still paying the insane prices. Why? They just want to get out. So I think the the hangover of COVID is still around. Less so, though, the farther we get away. Societal changes, you never know which way they're going to go. But as you said, the birth model is heading south and something that has to be addressed going forward. But maybe if people start to feel better about the economy, for instance, then more will decide to have kids again, right? I guess it can swing the other way. Is it is it harder for it to swing the other way? I'm looking for, you know, what positive signs do you see? Can we leave? People- I don't think it's something that happens overnight. But if you think about it, people are turning on the TV and seeing what's happening in the Middle East right now. They go into the supermarket uh, for Halloween and they're seeing little Hershey's chocolates that went for ten ninety nine three years ago, going for fifteen ninety nine. Uh, it, you know, and on and on. And they think about, well, can I have another kid? I want another kid, but. So if, if things improve, if people feel better, yeah, they're apt to, you know, want to have, you would think, a bigger family. Uh, but there are things, in, you know, the news right now, you know, that that is part of the effect of, you know, why people are, take a step back, unfortunately. What do you see um, even in terms of the, you know, financial outlook that gives you reason for optimism? Well, uh, I think uh, 150 million of us go to work every day to do better for ourselves and family. Uh, the one thing about our capitalistic society is, for the most part, it's unencumbered. And that's why every year you're seeing momentous uh, improvement and advancements in medicine in technology, in things we never dreamed of uh, 25 years ago. And I can guarantee you, it's only going to get better going forward. Our uh, longevity, as far as, you know, life expectancy uh, is going to get better. Uh, as we get older, we're going to have better health. Um, so I do think uh, there's great things to come, but there's things that, that do have to be addressed, starting with uh, a government that's out of control with their debt and their spending, uh, and uh, then you can get out a big laundry list. Gary Kultbaum, president of Kultbaum Capital Management, also a Fox Business contributor. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure is always mine. Thank you. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David McGee. What's on your mind? As a father whose son died of an opioid overdose, it infuriates me to watch the same corporations that profited from spreading opioid addiction positioning themselves to profit off the aftermath. It should make you furious too, but there's still time to change course. Major drug distributors, including Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, filled our communities with these dangerous and addictive drugs, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths over the last two decades. State and local governments sued them for their recklessness. And last year, these distributors reached a settlement agreement that will funnel millions of dollars into affected communities for the next 18 years to help clean up the mess they left behind. Many states are receiving their initial payments now. The settlement provides crucial funding for drug treatment and other programs aimed at addressing the health crisis. Every state in this country needs to distribute this money as quickly as possible. The scale of the problem is vast. Opioid overdoses killed nearly 83,000 people in the U.S. last year, almost four times as many deaths as they caused 10 years before. The victims are all of us from every demographic sector. Fentanyl overdose deaths have more than tripled in five years, according to the CDC. But the drug crisis is hitting teenagers particularly hard. That's why it's crucial for states and localities to invest some of the new resources into the distribution of naloxone, often marketed as Narcan, a miracle medicine that can reverse opioid overdose. Naloxone has saved many lives and can save many more. It's inexpensive and easy to administer. It should be made widely available in schools, in communities, everywhere. Maybe if the antidote had been more widely available, my William would be a lawyer today. A decade ago, my son checked into substance treatment soon after graduating as an honors student and athlete from Ole Miss. William initially misused substances in an attempt to self-medicate his anxiety and depression. After treatment, William was doing well in recovery, hoping to go to law school, but he relapsed and began using opiates again. I found him dead at the age of 23, an accidental overdose in the spring of 2013. In the years since, I have done extensive work trying to save the lives and joy of this country's youth. And I'm proud that we've dug in deep at my alma mater, Ole Miss, creating the William McGee Center for Alcohol and Drug Wellness Education and Research. This work has saved lives, and it's begun much-needed conversations about finding and sharing solutions which can be implemented broadly, helping us find our way out from the crisis. Still, we are burying too many young people, and we need to do more. States should immediately move to use the settlement money to fund everything from addiction treatment to educational campaigns. In deciding how to spend the money, though, there should be two non-negotiable principles. A significant share of the money needs to go to making the life-saving antidote of naloxone widely available. But none of that money should go to the companies responsible for the epidemic. States that contract with those companies to distribute naloxone would be enabling these bad actors to buy down their liability. 
Those companies have agreed to pay a collective penalty of more than $19.5 billion for their involvement. Distributing naloxone with settlement money would create a new profit stream that effectively reduces that penalty. They shouldn't be permitted to make back a cent. I'm David McGee, author of Dear William, a father's memoir of addiction, recovery, love and loss, and the founder of the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing at the University of Mississippi. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it on demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 